you're a veteran or military spouse of an early stage startup or small business and feel like you're making it up as you go, then you've come to the right place. Welcome to The Transition, where we demystify the entrepreneur experience for veterans and military spouses who've already made or looking to make the transition from the military into entrepreneurship. I'm your host, Iron Mike Stedman, the voice of the bunker. I'm a Marine Corps veteran, social entrepreneur, and member of the Bunker Labs branding team. In this episode of The Transition, I'm joined by Army veteran Andrew Wogamuth, co-founder of Wove, a 21st century jeweler bringing the jewelry designer directly to couples for custom engagement ring creation. Wove is the only engagement ring company that builds you a custom replica ring for a home try-on. After a freak accident forced him to medically retire from the military early, Andrew found himself at Stanford Ignite, an entrepreneurial boot camp for veterans at Stanford University's Graduate School of Business, which I had the privilege of attending back in 2017. Following Ignite, Andrew decided to go all in on Wove, along with his co-founder, Brian Elliott, also a fellow Army veteran and West Point graduate. On the show, Andrew opens up about his transition, including his long and grueling recovery process after his freak training accident, how his family's business gave him the inspiration for Wove, and the importance of taking care of yourself as an entrepreneur. Not gonna lie, I was pretty excited about this interview as I've been following Wove from afar and finally get to put a face on the brand. Before you hear from Andrew and I, make sure you subscribe to the Transition newsletter at the link in the show notes. I'll do my best to send out a newsletter at least once a week, and if there's a topic you'd like me to cover on the show or in the newsletter, shoot me an email at mike.stedman at bunkerlabs.org or message me directly on LinkedIn at Iron Mike Stedman. This episode of The Transition is brought to you by MetLife Foundation and their commitment to supporting veteran and military spouse entrepreneurs. In addition, MetLife Foundation provides mentorship and financial health resources to veterans and military spouses transitioning into the workforce. As always, I hope you enjoyed today's show and that accelerates you on your own entrepreneurial journey. Andrew, my man, welcome to The Transition. What's going on, brother? Not too much, man. Uh, excited to be here, kind of share a little bit about um, what we're building with Wove, a little bit about my military transition, but yeah, excited to, uh, excited to be here. So Andrew and I got connected through Tim Shia from uh, Context Ventures, founder of the Military Veterans Startup Conference, which I'm looking forward to heading to in February. And uh, <laughs> it's funny because I've seen y'all getting posted about online, you know, the PenFed Foundation, uh, Tim posting about y'all. And then you and I just have a lot of overlap. We both went through Stanford Ignite. You're a West Point grad. I'm a Naval Academy grad. Um, and so it's great to get you on platform and share your story because selfishly, I'm a brand guy, right? I love building brands. And when I look at you, one of the things that immediately popped up in terms of comparison was Warby Parker, right? And how people thought it was crazy to like buy eyeglasses online. And then yet here y'all are doing engagement rings, man. So I'm excited to get into it. But I would first like you to start by introducing yourself uh, to our listeners and why you weren't smart enough to get into Annapolis. Yeah, no, it's a it's a great, great, great uh, question. Um, yeah, so uh, yeah, like you said, Drew Walgmuth from Lancaster, Pennsylvania, um, went to West Point. Um, basically, right out of the West Point, commissioned as an infantry officer um, while there, like road crew. Um, you know, was passable as a cadet. I uh, was not a standout cadet by any means, uh, but got through it. And um, yeah, post uh, West Point. Um, served in the infantry for about five years. Uh, the last two and a half of that was in the Ranger Regiment. Uh, so got to do a couple deployments, um, was basically a PL and XO in a few different units. Um, and then uh, really at the end of my military time, was in a little bit of a training accident, uh, broke my neck and jaw during a nighttime training accident, um, knocked out most of my teeth. And it kind of led to a transition um, that was very unbeknownst to me. Uh, at the time, I had been dating my now wife three weeks. Uh, so I think the first like year and a half, she knew me more without teeth than with teeth, um, which is definitely an interesting way to, to meet somebody. Um, but yeah, had an amazing opportunity getting out of the Army. Um, the Commit Foundation, who I'm sure you're familiar with, Mike, um, set me up with uh, Stanford Ignite which is essentially an entrepreneurship crash course uh, through Stanford GSB. Had an amazing experience there. I uh, got to connect with a bunch of other veterans. And really, that was kind of the, 
moment that we really started ideating around Wove in this experience of building custom engagement rings online for couples and sending them a realistic replica to their house in seven days. If they like that, we build them the real thing. So we actually tested this product um, with rangers that were deployed overseas, uh, working with them remotely, helping them design uh, an engagement ring so that when they got back from deployment, they could propose. And a lot of them didn't want to send, obviously, $10,000 engagement rings overseas. So we build them a replica that's essentially you know $3 but looks real. Um, overseas. And then when they got back, they could propose and then eventually buy the real thing. So yeah, that's kind of a, a crash course of, in the last uh, of the last like two to three years. But um, yeah, excited to be here. Man, that's dope as hell. I think that's a dope business idea. And I'm excited to learn where you saw the opportunity. But first, I got to ask, and you don't got to answer if you don't want to talk about it. But like, did you were you doing like night land nav and ran into a branch or what? No, no, it was um, equally as petty as that, but was basically doing a nighttime team live fire event right before deployment and was like running behind a team of my mortar platoon members and fell into one of those big cement um, grenade sumps that you see oh. at the end of ranges. Oh, uh, it wasn't covered. I was like under night vision, so I didn't have great peripherals and just in full kit landed uh, right on my face. So um yeah it not not really a sexy accident i wish it was something cool on deployment but yeah um yeah definitely interesting time i'm sorry to hear that man you know but to be honest y'all he looks like captain america anyway so i mean he's still he's still Uh, good uh yeah right damn no but i think about those night rangers at ilc and even in the infantry you know um i was a platoon commander but first on eighth Marines. So I know exactly what you're talking about. You're adrenaline's yep. pumping, you're moving. Come on guys, let's go. And you make that step and you don't see it. And then damn. Yeah. Yeah. It was, um, yeah. I'm like almost embarrassed to tell people exactly how it happened because like I said, not a cool accident. Um, there's like a million other cooler ways to get hurt. Uh, yeah. but yeah. I love how you said I did something that's equally petty though, but it just comes with it, man. Training, moving at a high level, you're high performance, yeah, yeah. so it's all good. And I want to, we're going to get into it, but you came out the gate swinging. You're like, I'm going to Stanford Ignite and I'm starting a venture backable startup because most, to be honest, West Point grad, Army Rangers I come across, y'all end up going to business school at like Warden or Stanford or somewhere. And then y'all are like, oh, I'm yeah. going to start a business. But you were like, no, nah, I'm good. I'm going like head first. Yeah, it was actually interesting because I wasn't planning on getting out of the Army. This event happened, and it was kind of looking like this was going to be the next transition. So for full transparency, I immediately started studying for the GMAT. I was like, I'm going to go to business school because that's like you said, like that's the path. It's what everyone does. Um, it'll guarantee me getting a job because getting out of the Ranger Regiment, like what are my what are my skills? Like what am I good at? Um, I can't go and translate team live fires into normal, normal civilian world. So yeah, got, uh, got super lucky. My co-founder was also in the Ranger Regiment. I met him at West Point. Um, he had dabbled in the entrepreneurship space, uh, like a, about a year before, um, I had gotten out. Um, and so Stanford Ignite though was an amazing opportunity just to kind of, you know, get my feet set underneath me, um, get oriented and ultimately, get exposure to entrepreneurship. Uh, I think if I didn't have that, that event in the, my transition path, um, I'm not sure I would have had the confidence, honestly, to go all in on it. Truly. Yeah, it was kind of like a scary time. Yeah. We keep throwing around Stanford Ignite. So before we take off our armor, tell our listeners yeah. what Stanford Ignite is, because sometimes I don't know if they're still going to have the program, but there are a lot of other similar programs out there available, but I still have my binder from like Stanford. Yeah, Ignite. And I, sometimes I wish I could go back and go through the program again with the understanding I have now about entrepreneurship. Because at the time, it was all just fresh to me. So it felt like a fire hose. Yeah. And I, you're like a sponge coming out of the army. Um, if you're like me, you're like kind of scared to death about what was next. Um, so yeah, essentially Stanford Ignite is a, I think it's a four-week program at Stanford GSB. It's essentially a entrepreneurship crash course. So everyone comes to the program with a venture idea. Um, you pitch your venture ideas. If you're lucky enough to get your idea chosen, you get a team of nine other people working on your venture idea for those four weeks. Uh, you essentially do 
market research, put together a pitch deck, uh, and then pitch the idea at the end of the competition or at the end of the course to a bunch of venture capitalists, Stanford professors. Um, yeah, I had an amazing experience. I think just getting the exposure to that caliber of professor, um, my peers there were like amazing, um, really challenged and pushed me. They came from all different walks of life. Um, most of them were military. Uh, but yeah, really an amazing opportunity to kind of get your feet wet, test out your idea and see if there's anything to it. I don't know about you, but I'm convinced that like Stanford Ignite was like an MBA without all the other classes, you know, yeah. it was just yeah. pure entrepreneurship focus, accounting, everything. Right. And the program is actually set up because Stanford Ignite and there's a lot of universities that have these programs. So I'm going to educate y'all. But you have a lot of professionals, PhDs, academics that come up with great technology ideas all the time, but they're not necessarily trained in the art of business, the art and science of business. So Stanford Ignite is a program that essentially was started to help commercialize technology. And so even here in uh, Newark at the New Jersey Institute of Technology, they have lean startup programs. They got all kinds of programs. So even if you aren't able to do Stanford Ignite, look around your local community. Look at these entrepreneur programs available at the university level that you can apply for and get in. Because essentially what you're going to start to see, the more you do this entrepreneurial education, you're going to see a lot more overlap in terms of the curriculum that's being delivered. The unique thing about Stanford Ignite was we were all veterans um, on the campus of Stanford University for four weeks. So I don't want everybody to feel like, oh, man, I missed out on it. Right. There's tons of these programs out there available. You just got to look. I promise you. Yeah, absolutely. I think the biggest thing that taught me was, frankly, um, you know, I, I think I had this idea. If I want to be an entrepreneur, I have to go out and raise millions of dollars and and start my business like that from scratch. Um, I think the most important thing it taught me was the ability to take all of your assumptions, take your idea and test it quickly and under a very minimal low budget. And then once you have that hypothesis tested and you're ready to roll, then go out and raise money. But um, all of these things that I don't know, uh, things I did not know going into entrepreneurship that I feel like they accelerated that learning curve for me. Like you said, it's like drinking out of a fire hose, um, especially coming from, from the military. Now that you're in the heat, right? You're in yeah. the real, the hustle, you raise some capital, you're out there selling, just did your website, right? We got to take off our armor and get vulnerable. Yeah. So let our sure. listeners know something you're struggling with, either personally or professionally, as an entrepreneur in the trenches. Yeah, it's interesting. I feel like the, the types of entrepreneurs I see, it feels like there's two types. There's those that are brilliant people. They've got this billion dollar idea and they go out and it's like wildfire. It just ignites and goes viral. And then there's the other type of founders, which I would say are like me. And you feel like you are literally willing your idea into existence where you try a hundred different things and one thing sticks. Um, we just finished raising um, our, our second round of funding. Um, and I think just the having the patience and the uh, perseverance to pitch to 50 VCs, get told 49 times that uh, your idea isn't worth investing in to get to that one yes. Uh, for me, that's that was like uh, something that was really challenging, kind of get, taking that gut punch um, again and again and again and continue to, to believe in your idea. So I think the biggest thing I'm learning right now is, is just... Um, Continue to believe in your idea, no matter kind of what other people tell you. I mean, you certainly want to listen to your your target audience, listen to the, your surveys, go out and do research, but um, also like believe in yourself and understand that, you know, you're going to hear a lot of no's before you get a yes to. Not only that, but a lot of times people are looking at the past and entrepreneurs are looking and living in the future. So you, yeah. there is some truth about wilderness and manifesting it into existence. And as a category designer, that's one of the things I tell entrepreneurs all the time is that like a lot of times people, they're just stuck in the past. Right. Um, yeah. And so there are frameworks and strategies that make it a little bit easier. But don't get me wrong, man. You still got to grind and you still got to work at it. You know, you still got to um, got to do the work. I just dropped Absolutely. this on. A, and I am anti hustle porn. I just want you all to know. Right. I have a whole podcast where I blast hustle porn on my other show, Dog Whistle Brandon. But, man, I get motivated by that. Uh, I think it's the quarterback for the Baltimore Ravens. What's his name? He has the T-shirt oh, that says, uh, no one cares, work harder. 
Yeah, yeah. And and that's what I think about. So like, yeah, man, there's times where you're like, whoa, is me. But at the end of the day, it's like, okay, what can I control? What can yeah. I get out, you know, and focus on that? I think there are like so many parallels between the military and entrepreneurship as well, right? I mean, I think you you have to have, um, you know, the grit and the perseverance, but also um, the ability to like take a step back, um, look at the situation around you and, and make decisions driven by data um, that ultimately will allow you to, to get to the outcome that you're looking for. Um, I know for us, like we're a CPG company, consumer purchase goods. Um, we're selling a product online, a physical product. Um, and one of the things that, that for us that's been super important is just having your ears open to your clients um, and continuously listening to feedback you're getting from them and being able to cut out the other noise uh, of what maybe um, you know certain other stakeholders are telling you and just really zero in on what do your clients want, um, what's the experience that you're looking to provide them and continuously getting better in that sense as well. Yeah. I guess I'll go ahead and take my armor since you're getting vulnerable too. Um, and I don't know if I said this on another podcast. I might've already said this y'all because I've been hooking and jabbing. I've been recording so much content uh, lately that I tend to forget, but uh, you know, I became a business coach with the lion's pride. And so now I'm in my own new level of uh, how do I say this? I remember when I was at Stanford Ignite, one quote they said was operate at the edge of your own competency, right? So when you're at the edge of your own competency, you feel a little uncomfortable. And that's when that imposter starts uh, creeping oh, yeah. up and telling you what you are not, you know? Um, and for me, this is a new level for me, advising better known small business owners, um, guys and gals that are running, you know, million dollar and multi-million dollar companies. And so as someone who hasn't exited yet, you know, keyword yet, or built a multi-million dollar company yet, I can see the imposter over there, right? But at the same time, right, I'm very confident in my ability to create and deliver value, um, but just because I'm so well read. And so one of the ways I attack imposter syndrome is to write and learn and just be better, right? Yeah. So if there's a weakness I have, um, you know, I just, I focus on my strengths, but at the same time, I've been building my own little coaching toolkit to level myself up, you know? Um, and so I'm just sharing that with you all as I, you know, continue to level up and grow as an entrepreneur. And with that, Right. I've been setting a lot of systems in my own business, Ironbound Media, which gives me a lot of practice, too. So I got no problems. I'm just sharing with y'all to let you know that, like, hey, this is me operating at the edge a little bit. And another thing I'll tell you is sometimes it's like, man, sometimes I feel sunned, you know, like I feel like I'm doing good. I'm doing Ironbound Media, got my business coaching. I just publish a book and then I'll be on with someone. And they're like, yeah, I'm starting a fund. And I'm just like, oh, yeah, you know? <laughs> I suck at life, but not really. It's just like. Focus on your own paper and quit worrying about what other people are doing. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I've had a couple of buddies um, that are veterans that, that like recently had exits. And I'm like, holy cow, like, what am I doing with my life? Like, uh, I feel like the problems I'm trying to solve are, um, you know, big problems. And uh, I think it's a, a great perspective to have uh, really zeroing in on like, what are the issues in your life and how do you make them make them better um, and solve them to 100 percent? Now, one thing I got to acknowledge, which brought us here today is Bunker Labs, a national network of veteran and military spouse entrepreneurs dedicated to helping our ecosystem start and grow their own businesses. How has it been for you to transition out of the military and land on this veteran entrepreneur and military spouse community? Yeah, I think it's been great. Um, you know, beyond Stanford Ignite, we've had access to some amazing veteran investors, uh, mentors. Bunker Labs is a great program. Uh, both my co-founder and I participated in um, in the Bunker Labs program, and I think like having access to those resources is really invaluable. Um, you know, a lot of people do Bunker Labs because you, you get access to mentors. Uh, if you're in the program, you get like a WeWork access, which for us was huge. We were going to Philly and Boston all the time with our business, so being able to like duck into an office. Um, and have a place where you can work has been great. Um, but there are so many resources out there. A lot of our investors, like PenFed Bank, um, Rare Breed Ventures, uh, the uh, West Point um, Entrepreneurship Fund, there's, there's so many re uh, resources that are readily available um, for veteran entrepreneurs. So I think definitely like look into those, figure out what they are, um, and then take advantage of them. Because, yeah, they're put in place for people like us that, that want to start a business. Um, I think fundraising in itself can be a huge uh, 
barrier to entry for veterans. I think getting educated on how to go about doing that um, is is really one of those things where once you have it, it gives you the confidence to to go out and and build. But a lot of people view that as kind of the uh, the barrier that's keeping them from starting a business. Um, I don't think that should be the case, but I think just knowing that the resources are out there uh, for veterans that, that want to pursue that route. Are you surprised that it was here? So like when you were, you know, hating life with no teeth, just kind of beat yeah. up, like, did you know you had this community to fall in on? I, I think I, I knew of it, but until I really immersed myself in it, I don't think I knew the true power of it, yeah. uh, really. Um, I mean, service to school, there are so many incredible programs out there. MillVet now with Brendan Aronson is an amazing program. Um, there are so many people that, that really want to have your back, um, and encourage you through the process because it is like, there's nothing, um, more challenging, I think, than being like a, a lonely entrepreneur trying to push your idea. Um, when you don't have that, that early traction yet, I think it's, it's really difficult. So I think diving into those communities, getting that, that, um, that, uh, encouragement is like really vital. Um, even for like your own mental health, right? Like for me, getting out of the military was great. Everyone talks about the military transition, um, how challenging it is. And I think being able to kind of put your head down and work and dive into something, get immersed in a community can really be uh, just extraordinarily valuable for any veteran that wants to get into entrepreneurship. 100%. Now, where are you dialing in today from? Because that looks pretty nice where you're... Uh, where yeah, you're so this is, uh, this is our jewelry shop in, in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Um, so yeah, we're, we're based in Lancaster. Uh, we're like about a 50% remote company, 50% uh, in Lancaster. We build all of our jewelry in Lancaster. And then um, a lot of our sales, web developers, marketers are all remote. So you have an actual jewelry shop in uh, Lancaster? We, we have a physical location in Lancaster City, Pennsylvania. This is dope. I'm fired up, y'all. Right, this is going to be great. All right, all right, all right. I'm fired up. Here's why I'm fired up. Because there is a brand that I follow called Squire. Right. And what they are, the point of sales software app for barbers. And they really, you know, they've just kind of taken off. They're on their way to unicorn status. And one of the things the founders had to do was um, they created this platform, you know, to help people book haircuts, you know, on through the app instead of having to just show up at the barbershop and wait. But they didn't have they were like up against it early on. Right. So one of the things that they did was they end up investing like thirty thousand dollars. They liquidated their savings to buy a barbershop for like eight months and run it to really gain empathy and understanding about um, the pain point that they were trying to solve for. And that has been crucial in their growth of really being like, you know, how do I say this? Like they really understand, you know, what barbers go through and that's helped them create an amazing product. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think um, so. When I actually got out initially, I moved home. I worked for my my family's jewelry company for three months before going breaking off and starting Wove. And I think being able to work with clients, like real customers that were going through the experience um, over that three month period, like helped us build out our user experience. So, like, I completely agree. Being able to empathize with your target audience, with the, the client base that you're trying to serve. I think is invaluable uh, to like learning those lessons for and testing your assumptions on like, is what I'm building actually what people want? Right. So you just told on yourself, which is why it's good. We got to go back. Okay. So I yeah. know you were in the hospital, had a whole situation happen. You end up getting out, going to Stanford Ignite, right? Great program. When did you say, hey, like talk us through the market opportunity you saw for yep. Wove. And I love the fact that you had this background with a family in the jewelry business, which yeah. to me is a dog whistle because you got product founder fit. Yeah, I think um, never imagined I would get into jewelry, truly. It was like, I want to be a ranger, um, but you're right. Like, saw this opportunity. I actually came up with this idea when I was stationed out at Fort Lewis in Washington. My family's business was in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. I was proposing to my, my wife and designed a ring with my parents. Of course, they're building it for me at cost because they're my parents. They send me photos, videos. I'm like, yep, looks good. Get the actual ring. And was like, wow, this looks way different in person than what I, was, I thought it was going to look like. Um, and it was kind of that aha moment of like, if I'm struggling with this purchasing experience, I can't imagine people that 
didn't grow up in the industry that are buying online, how they're managing, you know, spending thousands of dollars on this highly sentimental and important purchase without having the confidence that what shows up in a UPS box is going to be actually what you want to give to the love of your life. And so I'd also, I think that same week, listened to the, have you ever listened to Guy Raz, um, How I Built This Podcast? Of course. They had just done the Warby Parker version of, uh, or episode of that show. And kind of putting two and two together, I was like, why are people not like sending replicas to people? Like, why don't we just substitute gold with brass and use non-precious gems um, to go through this experience? So really, that's kind of what got the wheels turning. Um was, you know, like I said, kind of searching on my way out, didn't know if I was going to go to grad school, if I was going to start this business that I was ideating around and Stanford Ignite seemed kind of like the perfect fit between those two things. I knew I needed like some form of education or thought I did to, to kind of like jump off. Um, and it proved to be incredibly valuable. But really running that idea through Stanford Ignite for those four weeks, uh, getting out at that point in time, I don't think I had the full confidence to just say, hey, I'm going to do this, not take any pay for the next foreseeable future and go all in on this. So I did move home, work for my family's jewelry business for about two and a half months while working on this idea before truly being like, hey, dad, like I'm going to go out and do this. What do you think? Um, and I think, yeah, having a foundation um, in the industry was extraordinarily helpful. But I think if each of us like looked at our background, like what either our parents did, our families, where we have connections through mentors, I think everyone has something, right? Where for me, it was jewelry. And I never thought that that was going to be an asset in my life or uh, something that I could utilize in my life. But being able to use that background with this, I paired with this idea has been really instrumental. I, I don't think I can honestly say that if I didn't have a family in the industry that I would have had the resources or the access to knowledge to truly go out and do this. Um, I think for a lot of people, it's just figuring out, you know, what is that in your life that what ex like problem have you experienced that you think you can change and, and create something new and exciting for, for people that would ultimately be helpful make the world a better place not only that but there's all these different legacy industries out there that are still being run like mom and pop style right yeah. but are huge market opportunities you know um uh scott patterson fellow marine runs tumble which is introduces yeah. smart laundry into the ecosystem what you guys are what you guys are doing at wove i think you know at a certain point right it's great to be this disruptor and look at all these new tech opportunities like crypto and stuff but then you also say like what do i know really well you know what's the thing that's going to instill confidence in investors because when you're up against it in the thick of it you've got to have some kind of intellectual knowledge to rely on of like oh this is in my first rodeo so you you know in this space of my family comes from it and all this other stuff i'm sure that's super appealing to investors um, and it probably is also where you get your confidence from. Yeah, it was funny. I think, um, so I don't know if you remember Yossi Feinberg. He I do. runs the That's Stanford my program. Awesome yeah. guy. I think it was him that said this. I could be misquoting him. Uh, but essentially it was like, you know, what's going to keep two Stanford undergraduates from building their company and their, your company in their dorm room? Like, what's your defensibility? What do you have that someone else doesn't have? Yeah. And for me, it was access to vendors in the industry. It was understand the consumer experience at a deeper level than most people. Um, and so I think it's, it's kind of asking the question, like, are you the right person to build your idea? Is it the right time for your idea to exist in the world? And, um, you know, do you have the ability to execute on your idea? Because I think, I don't know, I, I think that most people in their life probably have a million dollar idea. Execution is really what makes that idea happen. Um, ideas are cheap. It's, you know, can you execute on it and actually build what you're setting out to build? Um, but yeah, it's just fascinating. All right. So, one thing I'm always telling advice, uh, entrepreneurs is like, okay, I got a great idea. Cool. But is there a market for your idea? And how did you validate it um, with paying customers? Okay. So, talk us through how you validated that, like, you can make this into a business. Truly. So I think the first thing that we looked at was, is our value proposition actually something that people want? The earliest version of our product was 
take a photo, submit the photo, and we send you a ring. Because we found that around 70 to 80% of couples today find inspiration for their engagement ring on Instagram. So we wanted to be the easiest option from A to B to deliver that ring to somebody. And we found out that there were like a myriad of uh, issues with proposing that business idea. Um, a lot of them were like legal issues. You can't just steal someone else's ring and recreate it and pawn it off as, as your own. Um, but really the way that we were able to test this early on, a lot of our early adopters, we essentially said, we are going to build your ring for you at cost. We will beat everyone's prices. We're not going to make any money on our rings. I think about the first 50 rings that we built for people, we made like no money. We essentially built it at cost, delivered them this product experience. And then in return, we asked them to do pretty intensive surveys on what their experience was like working with us, what they liked, what they didn't like. Um, and really, I think the willingness to not make any money early on allowed us to really zero in on what is the value proposition that we're offering and what is the experience that clients actually want? What are their pain points and how do we solve them? Um, so that was one of the earliest ways that we tested our experience. We were kind of lucky as well that COVID kind of coincided beautifully with what we were building. A lot of jewelry stores closed down. People didn't have access to physical um, they couldn't walk into a jewelry store. So our option solved an immediate problem for them, which is how am I going to get an engagement ring and how do I know it's going to be what I want if I'm buying it online? And so that replica experience went from sending it to deployed rangers to now working with people that were in the midst of COVID to discovering, hey, this is actually something that normal people want from around the, the U.S. And then delivering that new and improved buyer experience uh, to them, uh, to wherever they were. So a lot of like third, um, what do we call it? Like tertiary cities or like non-primary uh, cities right. are excellent sources of business for us because, you know, someone might not be within 30 minutes of a jewelry store. And to them, it's so much easier to have this design experience online where they get to work with an amazing designer, get the ring sent to their house in seven days. Um, and you know, not have to travel for travel, like far and wide to find a jeweler. All right. So like all things, right. We think we're solving this, but we're really solving this. What did mm -hmm. you find out? Wolves real value proposition was. Yeah. Have you ever read the, uh, the book, the mom test? Not yet, but I, I saw the guy on, um, is it Sam Parr from my first million? Right. Uh, Maybe he, he references uh, that book and I, I just bought it. It's like such a, it's like such a short read, but so valuable. It's kind of like a message. I think a lot of us need to hear. Um, I think if you're not willing to see your idea fail and pivot, um, you're like not the, the odds that your original idea is going to be the idea that hits is so unlikely. Um, so for us, I think what we originally thought that clients wanted was this ability to um, get things extraordinarily quickly. Um, and that is important. A lot of people want things delivered to them quickly. But really what people want that we've found is they want a, a purchase experience that doesn't feel transactional. Um, if you look at a lot of online jewelry companies, it's like click to buy. Um, and really, if you think about what you're buying, an engagement ring is one of the most sentimental um, expensive and meaningful purchases that you'll make in your life. And jewelry stores are trying to make it uh, a quick sale, right? They're trying to capitalize on this moment in your life where you're at and sell you something quickly and likely never see you again. So we tried to make this a complete experience for couples. And I think the other thing that we really piggybacked on was a lot of cultural tailwinds. Um, you know, you've probably heard the, like the term, the creator economy. A lot of people want things personalized. They don't want to see their friend wearing the same engagement ring as them. Um, and people also want this, this experience together as a couple, 70% of couples today buy their engagement rings together versus traditionally, um, you know, the way I bought my engagement ring was I bought it for my wife without her knowing any details really. Um, and so being able to kind of shape our user experience around those cultural tailwinds and really providing an experience, um, is something that has attracted a ton of our couples to wove. Um, versus, you know, working with a pushy salesperson who's trying to make a quick commission off of you. 
Not to mention those of us that went to service academies, y'all. I apologize for. I know we got a lot of listeners that are enlisted that were not able to go to service academy. But one of the things that we do is we all get these class rings, and I know y'all call us ring knockers. <laughs> but I felt like the experience around that was great. You know, like they brought us in, they made you feel special. You know, and there's a jeweler in Annapolis that I still go to, and I've never bought jewelry from them, but they would always clean my ring. Yeah. Right? So, like, I want to buy from them one day just because, you know, um, and they just, you know, but I just think about that experience and what it sounds like you guys really hone in on is like the user experience, right? You're changing the experience of what it means to purchase an engagement ring. Yeah, absolutely. And I think a lot of that starts with our design consultation. Um, it's interesting when we started hiring jewelry designers, because we don't really have salespeople. Uh, we build a ring with you. We just tell you, like, this is what it costs. Um, and we can either modify it to make it less expensive. We can, you know, add things to make it more expensive. But I think kind of cutting out the salesperson from the process makes people so much more comfortable. Uh, they build a relationship with this designer. The idea is they become their lifetime kind of concierge for future jewelry purchases as well. Um, and the other interesting thing, and this is kind of like, I think there's a lot of pe uh, parallels between Peloton, their ability to attract really great trainers that were underpaid, undervalued, didn't have a platform. Uh, we're kind of trying to do the same thing with jewelry designers. So jewelry designers are really extraordinarily talented, um, very underpaid in the industry, and they don't have a platform to stand on. And so what we're doing is, is hiring extraordinarily talented designers. We've hired the, the head designers from some of the top brands in jewelry. Uh, the top designer from Gabriel & Co. Uh, works with us uh, on our staff. Um, the top jewelry designer that used to be the head jewelry designer at Decorey uh, has worked with us. And so we're getting these amazing designers. Um, they're able to make more money through Wove and clients are able to have this experience that in the past only celebrities or you know ex independently wealthy people had access to so that's been really neat as well all right i'm doing a thought exercise this is new y'all this is my first time doing this but i'm putting andrew on the spot because i know he can take it as a ranger okay let's do it what are the challenges to woe's business model and what would put you out of business as you think about the future so i really like uh roger l martin he wrote a book called Playing to Win, How Strategy Really Works. And one of the questions he always asks is, what would have to be true? Right? So anytime yeah. I'm building a brand or business, I ask myself, what would have to be true? I.e., you know, let's say I start, uh, let's say Wove, Engaging Ring, $6,000. There needs to be enough people that are searching for uh, this price point of an engagement ring, et cetera. Yeah, it is really fascinating. Um, People, I think, are going to continue to get married long into the future, um, and engagement rings are a key aspect of, of that. So I think there is a level of defensibility, um, but society changes constantly. I mean, engagement rings, even 20 years ago, the average engagement ring was like $1,000. Now the average engagement ring is $6,000. That might change. Um, and when we look at our process there's a certain um, price point that has to be achieved for our process to make sense. Um, we had um, we had a good buddy of ours who was getting out of the military. He was at uh, MIT Sloan uh, and was in a price sensitivity analysis class. Take our process and compare it to that of, say, a Blue Nile or Brilliant Earth and figure out what are people willing to pay over that price point for this experience. And it came out to about $1,500, which is, was to me was shocking um, because that's certainly, you know, uh, that, that builds in a lot of margin for us. But I think, you know, if, if the price point for engagement rings would, would, you know, drop significantly and our process was no longer able to make sense from a monetary perspective, to me, that's, that's something that would be uh, very detrimental to our business. Um, I, you know, I, Fingers crossed, I don't see that happening, but we have seen like a shift from natural diamonds to lab diamonds. So the, I think things in the industry are always changing. Um, and uh, yeah, I, that's a tough question. Um, <laughs> trying to, uh, but yeah, I think, I think societal changes is probably one of the biggest things that you know, we're constantly trying to follow. Uh, and brands, you see it all the time, they're constantly trying to improvise. I mean, Tiffany's is selling like uh, 
like uh, male engagement rings now uh, that are for guys. Like there's all these different types of transitions that brands are trying to make to continue to stay relevant. Um, I think the other thing too, and I, I would do that and I'm encouraging all you all out there that are in the entrepreneur hustle, put yourself out of business now so you can go through the strategy and figure out, okay, how can we prevent this from happening? So a lot of small business owners, right? Undercapitalized, right? Which means they run out of money. They can't pay. They don't make payroll and stuff. So then you have to start looking at, okay, if I get in a cash crunch, what are some new services or things that we can provide to help cover down on that, et cetera. So just something to think about. It's just a good thought experiments to go through. Yeah. I think also like even more situationally, so kind of like where the world is at right now with everything going on in Russia and Ukraine, you know, there's a ton of market speculation of, of what's going on. I think every single one of our investors has reached out to us at some point in the last three to four months and been like, Hey, buckle up. Like, you know, I don't know if you can necessarily count on raising a series a in six months because we have no idea where the market's going to be. Um, and you know, I think that is something that for us, we were, I think, well-equipped for. I think a lot of it came from the military where you have COAs for everything. You know, you have a PACE plan. What's your primary alternate contingency plan yeah. um, for every situation? And for us, we would build out financial models of, hey, if our sales drop this much, you know, where do we make cuts to survive? And how do we live through a recession? Um, but yeah, I don't know. I think that's a situation where military entrepreneurs are probably going to be better suited than maybe those that aren't used to having to prepare, you know, a, a three plans of action for any type of, of operation, so to say. Yeah, I even do that with Ironbound Media. You know, we got our primary hosting provider, which is either Riverside or uh, Squadcast. But and then we operate between secondary and tertiary. And our tertiary is always Zoom. So when audio and you know technology is a sh is is an issue, our default is Zoom because we know it always works. It's like hitting the light switch. Now, one of the things, um, one of the things I'm thinking about with you all is also growth, right? So yeah. like you're not a software as a service platform, and right. I didn't even think of Wove as a CPG company until you said it because in my mind, my mental model around consumer packaged goods is a lot of food and beverage, but I was like, oh, so there's a lot of labor involved. You gotta have the right talent, right? There's the yeah. time to get the, the the diamonds and all this other stuff. So, you know, you have to do all that and manage all that while it's still achieving that hockey stick growth that gets investors that 10X, 20X return that they're looking for. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, we have certain advantages um, in our industry, but there are certain other um, just industry inherent challenges that we have to face. So one of the benefits is, you know, jewelry has a, a pretty decent margin. Uh, we build everything in house. So we're not confined to supply chain issues. We're not shipping products from overseas and waiting on product to arrive to ship it out. We're pretty independent which is great, um, you know, but there, but there are, are other challenges that, that we have to face. And like, for instance, uh, you know, typically people buy one engagement ring or one wedding band. Um, you know, I, I wish we, we got to sell more, but also promoting happy marriages all the same. But, uh, you know, typically you're only going to sell that person one engagement ring. So it's, you know, how do we grow the business beyond that. Because if you have to reacquire customers every single time, um, it's a challenge. And so that's kind of been something that we've brought into, into our planning. Like we want to launch jewelry lines, for instance, in the next like 12 months. So yeah. our plan of action is, you know, uh, find a couple at this highly important moment in their life where they're looking for an engagement ring, give them an amazing experience, build trust, and then launch jewelry in a way that allows them to be a lifetime customer of Wove um, and earn that um, as, as a, uh, you know, earn that. Um, so yeah, it's interesting. Uh, kind of like, you know, which challenges different companies face. Uh, yeah. So for our listeners, right, I want you to think about this idea of category expansion. Okay. So they're starting out, right. And they're starting in engagement rings, but as they start to raise capital, they grow bigger, they work towards that, uh, initial public offering, then a lot of times that's where, you know, especially when you start getting those public dollars involved, they have to expand that category into other offerings. So a good example is to look at MailChimp, right? Everybody knows MailChimp for email marketing, but then once they went public, right? 
Now they've like expanded into all this other stuff, right? They want to be like your one-stop shop for small business. And again, for those of you that are thinking about raising venture capital, right? You've got to think about the future because that's the image you have to paint and sell to your investors because they're looking for that large market opportunity. So again, using Squire as an example, Squire initially started out as a booking platform for barbers. They've now expanded into the point of sale for barbers. So almost like a QuickBooks for barbers, right? So just some other things to think about as we educate you all more that are pursuing that venture backable route. Yeah, it is interesting too. I, I feel like, um, I read, I listened to a podcast. I think if you're listening to acquired at all, great podcast. Absolutely. Um, and they were talking about, you know, the startup of 2020 compared to the startup of 22, 2022 is very different. Whereas, you know, startups at that time, capital was so cheap. You would get incredibly high growth rates. You'd impress a bunch of VCs and you get cheap capital to continue to grow and expand. And now with capital being so expensive for entrepreneurs, you know, it's kind of shifting away from that growth model and more to what are the unit economics that are going to allow your business to survive in a downturn economy? Um, and that's been something that we've really taken to heart is like, you know, kind of going back to those COAs, how do we maintain, um, how do we survive through a downturn economy um, despite what's going on in the world around us? Yeah. And, and stop just zeroing in on growth, because I think we kind of get that beat into our heads. Like if we're not growing at these incredibly high um, rates, you know, how are we going to raise capital? And, and I think venture capitalists may not view it that way. Uh, you know, if you're going out to raise capital right now, they may view it a little bit differently than, than they viewed it you know, a year and a half ago. That's what I want to talk to you about next is how has your process been of, of raising capital? Talk to us about that yeah. first check, how much you've raised. And what the, the realistic challenges that come with that, because I know some venture capitalists, they want board seats, right? Um, yep. You've got to give up equity of your company. And one thing a lot of us pursue entrepreneurship for is about freedom and autonomy. Then you start taking people's money and now there are people, you know, in the trenches right there with you, you know, telling you which way to go. Yeah. Yeah. It's, I love talking about this because, a, you know, a year and a half, two years ago when I started this journey, Raising venture capital was such a foreign concept to me. I had no idea what I was doing. Um, it felt like almost wrong. Like I was taking on debt that I was going to owe somebody. It was really hard for me at first to spend investors' money, um, which is not a good place to be as a founder. Um, you know, you have to spend money to make money. Uh, but for us, we essentially, we started the company in March of 2021. Um, we raised our first pre-seed round in June of 2021. So really we established the company, um, you know, we had just gotten out of Stanford Ignite. So I think we had a little bit of footing underneath us and we raised 850, um, in our pre-seed round last year. Um, basically got that money. We deployed it by building out a beautiful brand, getting our earliest adopters, um, at that point, we we're outsourcing all of our production, um, you know, trying to run the company as inexpensively as possible to get us to that next round of financing. And then we raised a $3 million seed round in April. So to date, we, we've raised just under $4 million. Um, and uh, that's kind of where we're at from a funding perspective. But I think, you know, going back to like, not know if you don't know anything about raising venture capital, um, there are so many military founders out there that can walk you through it. And I think a lot of it is, you know, how have you tested your idea? Like your idea before you get a race funding should be pretty watertight. Um, you know, how have you tested your assumptions? What are the VCs and, and entrepreneurs or what are the VCs and investors that you're going to pitch to? Are they a good fit for you? And then I think getting a lot of reps on building pitch decks, pitching in front of people is, is super important. Um, because you may only get a few opportunities to pitch. And how do you capitalize on those opportunities? I think the best way to do that is, is really lean into the preparation and finding people that can kind of help walk you through it as mentors. First of all, I want to say congratulations. That's no small feat, especially you raise 850000 you know, pre-seed because you see a lot of investors that don't even want to invest pre-seed, you know, um, just because, right, it's not proven yet. You don't got a product. You don't got real traction. And so you're seeing a lot of, am I wrong about this? You see a lot more investors that are hesitant on the pre-seed? Yeah, I, I think we, our timing was pretty impeccable. 
um, you know, we closed our seed round in April, you know, kind of right before a lot of things started happening in the world. But I think you're absolutely right. I, what I think has impressed our investors the most was our level of diligence in going out and testing our idea. Um, we, you know, we didn't really leave any rocks unturned. We, we tested every assumption we had. We pivoted multiple times on what we believed the hypothesis to be. And I think showing that level of intentionality and detail is what impressed investors to be like, you know what, I'm going to trust you with my money because I know you're not going to waste it frivolously on untested hypotheses. Now, just to be clear, right, you raise, you know, over three and a half million dollars, right, right around that, okay? People can hear that, especially our bootstrap small business owners out there, and they're like, man, if I had three million dollars, I'd be off to the races, right? Yeah. What's the reality of even when you raise that much capital, managing the finances, you know, because it can be easy to spend money and you look up and it's like, it's gone. How do you compensate yourself as a founder? You don't have to give exact number, but just like, these are yeah. things that people don't really know about, about like, yo, how do you pay yourself? Is all that money going to you? How are you thinking about, how do you even learn like the financial aspect of deploying that capital? You're talking financial models, you know, do you got a CFO? Like, I'm real curious to know, like, yeah, we, we don't have a CFO. I mean, we're, we're too small to, to have like a much of a C-suite. Um, we probably won't have that level until, you know, a few future rounds. But um, yeah, it's, it's interesting. There are so many highs and lows to fundraising. Um, you get beat up again and again. Um, you finally, you know, you get a big hit, you, you close the round or you get a lead investor and you're, you're riding this high and you think money, money's going to solve all of my problems. You know, if I can just raise that next round, we've made it. Um, and what I've found is, you know, that's not true necessarily. I think money is obviously an amazing resource. Really what money gives you is time. Uh, money gives you time to continue to, um, like for us, a lot of our focus right now is on, on our conversion funnel. You know, at the top of the funnel, you have people that come to the website, then you have people that complete the quiz, people that go to the consultation, and at the bottom, you have people that are actually making that final purchase. And for us, it's how are we getting 1% better in each one of those different conversion rate categories? So, you know, it is fascinating. You know, money is, is important. Um, you need money and you need to spend money to grow as well. Initially, like I said, really difficult for me to spend money. We didn't pay ourselves even after raising our pre-seed round. Um, we only started paying ourselves, uh, I want to say it was about six months after raising our pre-seed. So, you know, I was really fortunate. I had a fiance that was essentially, I would call her like our honorary third co-founder that she supported me uh, through this. And, you know, uh, that was like really uh, incredible for me personally to have a, a partner that that was there in the trenches with me. Um, but I think, you know, uh, if you think money is going to be what gets your your business to uh, to success, I think you kind of have to go back and, and really reevaluate that that is not uh, single handedly money will not make your business succeed. Um, it's a great resource. It buys you time, but there's certainly much more to just raising capital as well. What keeps you up at night now? Ooh, what keeps me up at night? Um, you know, as our team has grown, it's been it's been really exciting. Uh, but you continue to kind of build on responsibility as well. Um, and it is a beautiful thing. I can remember when we first got our small office space. It was me and one goldsmith going to work there every day. Uh, and it was like, we'd both walk in the morning and be like, hey, what's up morning? And, uh, and then we'd leave. And, and, and now we've got like 10 people coming into this, this place. We have a full team. We have a culture that we've built. Um, but like the responsibility doesn't stop. Um, and I think, you know, in the military, you feel this responsibility as well for your team uh, to always make sure that you're providing the best opportunities for them, uh, that you're continuing to grow the business, not just for your investors, um, not just provide a better experience for your clients, but also um, that you're providing the best possible livelihood for your team as well. Um, so, uh, gosh, what keeps me up at night? That was not a very specific answer to your question. Um, but, you know, I, I think... Um, Really, what keeps me up at night is, you know, how do we continue to get our conversion rates better at every level? Like 1%, uh, really, 1% can mean the difference between success and failure in the long run of your business. And that sounds extreme, but uh, really, you know, 
being able to zero in on what is the problem, what's the KPI that I am trying to to solve for or to get better, and how do I produce new ideas that you know can get me that one percent. Uh, you know, I, I think that's kind of, um, kind of what keeps me up at night, but, uh, yeah. That's awesome, man. And, um, it's just cool, man. Um, and I'm curious to learn as a fellow infantry officer, Yeah. you know, for a lot of us veterans, people always say like, oh, the hardest thing you had was in the, the military. That's when you were really responsible for people's lives, but then you become a business owner and you really feel this responsibility to your team. You know, yeah. and I don't know about you, but when I was on deployment, like, yeah, you can the fear of death and all that other stuff. Right. We don't really honestly like we don't really think a lot about that because you're just doing your job. Yeah. But, yo, running out of money, being broke. Right. That's real fear. You know, yeah. Um, yeah. and for me, like that's even worse than like the idea of dying. It's like ending up broke on the street. And so sure. you see so much mental health and people struggling when they lose their jobs and they don't make payroll. It's super devastating. So I'm just curious, you know, as a fellow, you know, infantry guy, right? Like, do you feel that same, you know, responsibility? I, I think the challenges are like different for, for everybody. Um, you know, for me personally, I think entrepreneurship has been the most challenging, but the most rewarding thing I've ever done. Uh, I love the Ranger Regiment. You know, they're, being, being a Ranger is not easy either. Right. Um, you know, you go through, uh, you know, an MLAT exercise where you're up, uh, you know, you're getting like three hours of sleep for two weeks. You're jumping out of airplanes. But to be honest with you, that stuff was easier for me than than learning, um, you know, th than the entrepreneurship thing. And I've learned so much. Um, like if, if there's one thing I would say, like I was very set on going the MBA route. I think an MBA is a great option if you're getting out as a veteran. But I don't think I would have ever learned what I've learned about entrepreneurship to the same depth in an MBA program that I've learned just doing it the last year. Um, so I think it's, it's all relative, you know, for me, I loved being in the rancher regiment. Uh, it was easy. Um, you know, even though like there's real challenges, it was easy. Um, this has been like, yeah, this is tough. Like entrepreneurship's really, uh, it's really challenging. It's a roller coaster. I feel like you can't let your highs be too high and your lows be too low. You kind of just have to be temperate. Um, and, navigate each step, understanding that, um, you know, you're going to have really, really tough days and really amazing days. Um, yeah. When I was at the Naval Academy, right? Like I won three national championships and stuff. I never really read stuff on like human performance. Like I was watching like moto boxing videos and stuff as an entrepreneur. I'm reading self-help, you know, yeah. human performance. We're listening to podcasts and even as an infantry officer, right? Like, yeah, it was hard. But think about the amount of like mental investment we uh, spend money on and consume totally. content now just so we can wake up in the morning and like be our best self. Oh, my gosh. A hundred percent. Like, I, I think that's something that's really important, too, is the importance of you don't really realize this when you're in the military, but like the benefit, for instance, of working out every day. Uh, you do it every day in the military. Uh, you kind of forget that like that is a critical aspect of what you do. And I've had like weeks where I haven't worked out as an entrepreneur. I'm like, this is bad. I'm in a bad place. And being able to take the time to take care of yourself, eat, work out, sleep, um, you know, get some time to clear your head. It's so important to just take care of yourself and um, also find like friends and mentors to help you. I feel like I hound my mentors. Sometimes I feel bad, but I'm like, hey, like, what do you, what do you, what do you think about this? Um, yeah, this is something I'm struggling with. Uh, you know, what would you do here? So I think like taking care of yourself, I got myself a coach slash therapist, whatever you want to call it, that level of, um, you know, making sure that you're taking care of yourself is so important because there's a direct correlation between your own personal health as a leader in your business to how your business actually does. You can't take care of yourself. Uh, you're not gonna be able to take care of your employees, take care of your business. So yeah, totally. It's a, uh, it's a, it's an ever evolving challenge. Dude. I'm so glad you just said that one about the working out, right? Like yeah. I work, I get my butt to CrossFit every morning, right? Because I know the difference in the day. Like, I feel like when I work out in the morning, even if it's just 20 minutes, right? Like yep. I feel like I'm on the offense, right? Yeah. Like, I feel, sure. you know, let's go baby. Right. If I don't work out and I slime myself out of bed, I'm, I feel like I'm up against it every day. So like that was some self-awareness from me of like, that is such a good um, 
lead measure for me in the yeah. sense of like, look, are you, and it's crazy, right? When people get depressed, right? They're like, did you brush your teeth? Did you shower? Right? Did you feed yourself? And like, let's be honest, y'all. If you're an entrepreneur, I don't care what anybody says, man, the lows are low, right? And we've all felt it. And so like part of protecting yourself at all times, right? As like, you know, I'm a boxer, so it's like protective all time, bro, working out, feeding yourself. You know what I mean? Totally. Being around good people, right? Like being conscious of the content you're consuming, right? Because if you get caught up in the news and all that other stuff, man, it can just derail you. And the fact Absolutely. that not only you said about working out, having coaches, I got a nutrition coach, I got two business coaches, right? Like people see us at these levels, but they don't understand how much we invest behind the scenes to maintain, you know, and be our best selves at this level. Yeah, well, I think even taking that a step further, like my, um, you know, I, I'm married. I don't have any kids. I uh, can't, fr I can't frankly fathom having kids at this level. Uh, but like one of the best benefits of getting a coach was I found that I would call my coach and I would vent. I, I would talk about what's going on in my life, uh, what's going on in the business. And by venting to my coach, I wouldn't come home and vent to my wife. Mm. Uh, and it was like one of the best things that I did for my relationship because, you know, my wife is incredibly supportive, would do anything for, for me, for the business, for my co-founder. Uh, but it's not healthy. It's not a yeah. healthy thing to bring home with you. So I think like being very mindful of, you know, how you're doing and, you know, you might be able to get away with not working out for a couple of days, but by that, by that third day, it's going to, it's going to make a difference in your business. So I, I think you're a hundred percent spot on like, uh, self-care is, is huge. It's like one of the core principles in our business. We, we wrote out like eight operating principles and being an everyday athlete is, is one of them because no matter what you're doing, whether you're a goldsmith sitting at the bench or, you know, you're in marketing or you're whatever it is. Uh, I think being able to take care of yourself physically, mentally, spiritually is, is super important. I just had an epiphany. I'm up, I'm updating one of my core values at Ironbound Media. It was protect the asset. So make sure you're taking care of yourself. But I think I'm going to update that to protecting yourself at all times. I like right? that. That's cool. Um, that's more in line with my personality, man. I appreciate you sharing that. And honestly, y'all, I'm going to do some more podcasts on that very concept and turn some blog posts out because I don't, I know how lonely y'all are as entrepreneurs. You're living in your head. I talk to y'all all the time. So again, this stuff we're talking about, this is the real stuff, right? This is what hustle porn doesn't teach you. Yeah, work harder. Cool. Got it. But at the same time, it's like, what does hard work look like? It might look like for you that day going on a walk, you know, that might be your hard work is like turning it off, you know, so that you can, this is the long game. Yeah. I, I actually, I've never heard the hustle porn term. Yeah. I love that. I like, I really resonate with that because, you know, sometimes you do need someone just to yell at you, but a lot of times it's like, there's nothing actionable there. It's not, um, yeah, I don't know. I, I really like, uh, I like that term. I might steal that. Now, as one thing I got to ask you is, what's your BHAG? What's your big, hairy, audacious goal? Like, what are you and your team working towards, both as an entrepreneur yeah. and on a personal level? Yeah. So as an entrepreneur, like Wove, we want to be the lifetime jeweler for, for couples. Um, and, you know, we start that with this incredible design experience where we send you a replica ring, but we want to expand into jewelry. Like we want to have physical design studios. Um, my wife uh, works for Oculus and like there's a very, um, I, you know, like talking with her and kind of, you know, picking her brain. I think there's going to be a transition eventually way down the road to, to like metaverse retail. Uh, so I think there's so many places that we can take this, but being the lifetime jeweler uh, for our couples is the big uh, hairy audacious goal. Um, and I really do think that our process is changing the way that couples buy engagement rings. I think down the road, um, it's going to be an industry expectation to get a replica ring if you're building something custom. Uh, because, you know, why would you go anywhere that didn't provide that service to you? So that's, uh, that's, that's Wove's kind of a big, hairy, audacious goal. As we close out here, I got two questions for you. Number one, as an entrepreneur in the trenches, raised venture capital, still at the jewelry shore tonight, recording with me, what words of advice and encouragement would you like to leave our listeners with as they continue on their own entrepreneurial journey and as a community? How can we support and elevate the work you and your team are doing at Wove? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, one word of advice was that, you know, everyone starts from zero, right? Um, 
at some point, everyone has to learn how to be an entrepreneur, how to raise capital, how to do all these things. So I think surround yourself with great mentors, find a community of people that you can learn from and share with. Uh, and to, to me, that is what makes the biggest difference in, in being able to succeed or, or not. Um, and then, sorry, Mike, what was the second half of the question as well? As a community, how can we support you and your team at Wove? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, you know, we would love for you to check us out at wovemade.com. Follow us on Instagram, TikTok, Facebook. Um, you know, we're really excited about what we're building. Um, we, we're so fortunate we've got to serve so many couples. And uh, yeah, we're looking to grow and uh, serve more. Awesome, man. Well, it's been a pleasure having you on. I'm looking forward to coming down to your shop and hanging out with you in person. I think what you're doing is absolutely amazing. And I don't like to use comparisons because sometimes it can distract us, right? And it's like, oh, the uncola. You get what I'm saying? Um, but when I think about your business model and the opportunity, I just think it's huge, right? And I can see you guys well on your way. Um, and I'm also excited about how you incorporate technology, you know, into your business model. Um, it's just exciting all around, man. I'm so happy to have you in the ecosystem. So glad you made time for our listeners. And I'll be sure to include a link to your website um, in our show notes. And for everyone that's tuning in, uh, make sure you subscribe to the Transition Newsletter uh, at the link in the show notes as well. Feel free to reach out to me on LinkedIn at Iron Mike Stedman or shoot me an email at mike.stedman at bunkerlabs.org if there's a topic you want me to cover on the show or uh, in the newsletter. And be sure to also get plugged in to bunkerlabs.org. We got programs that'll take you from idea to invoice, incubate you, and position you to grow alongside other founders and CEOs. Until next time, peace, love, have a great rest of your week, everyone.